Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast, today with Michaela Malberg. Hi, Michaela. Hello, hi. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, and uh, I'm actually very glad that you're uh, with us today on the show, uh, and that is because uh, we had your husband prior to on our uh, show, who is uh, Heiko Schilling. Uh, we had him on the show when he was uh, still at TomTom. He uh, is now at Amazon, and uh, he's a, a great listener of our uh, podcast, a great fan of that. You just told me that before we started recording the show, and therefore I'm very glad for you to be on the show today. And as always, the first thing uh, on how we're gonna start today is that um, I am actually gonna give you the stage, obviously, to kind of introduce uh, yourself or kind of go in a storytelling way through your professional life. I mean, uh, you are a, a professor, so you're an academic by heart. And, um, you know, just for our, our listeners, uh, how did you basically, you know, end up where you are today? Uh, yeah, oh, where do we start? Not too far in the past, ideally. So I um, studied at the University of Bonn, and originally I wanted to become a secondary school teacher. So I thought subjects like English and mathematics are always good subjects to teach. So I set out <laughs> and studied English and mathematics at Bonn University. In that time, I also spent a little bit of time at the University of Exeter in the UK, and once I finished my degree, I thought I wasn't quite done with university yet. So I wanted to do a PhD. And what I always found super interesting was how much English and math as subjects actually fitted together for me. So it, it was never doing two really separate things. But I always thought, oh, there is so much that really can come nicely together and so my PhD was then in corpus linguistics and I explain in a bit what that is so I then went to do a PhD and during that time I spent a year at the University of Birmingham and I'm now back at Birmingham after quite a long time I'm now actually back at the University of Birmingham and then I spent a little bit of time working at the University of Bari in Italy and um, it wasn't quite clear that I would end up becoming um, an academic because when I finished my PhD and was waiting for my viva, I got into a bit of a panic for a while and thought, oh yeah, academia, you don't really get jobs in academia. So I started training as a fitness instructor. I didn't <laughs> need to go all the way with this in the end because right after my viva, I got a job um, in Liverpool. So I went to Liverpool to teach at Liverpool Hope University. Then I moved to Liverpool University, worked a couple of years there. Uh, spent some time working at the University of Nottingham and then uh, five years ago I moved to the University of Birmingham so going back to where basically my PhD started and that is where I'm now so I'm a professor of corpus linguistics there and I realize corpus linguistics is a bit of a funny term for a subject if you haven't encountered this yet so maybe we can come back to this term later but in a nutshell what I do is um, I study large amounts of texts, or you can also call this language data, and I use software and quantitative methods to find patterns in the language. What is crucial for this approach is that corpus linguists are really interested in the frequencies of words, because something that computers are really good at is uh, 
dealing with a lot of data, counting accurately, doing statistics for you. So the frequencies with which words occur, but also frequencies with which uh, words appear together to form patterns. So um, we also, as corpus linguists, consider how you can take quantitative data and visualize what you've got. So how can visualization help you to understand language better? Maybe to give an example, everyone knows word clouds. Word clouds aren't really corpus linguistics, but it's a nice example. So they seem to crop up everywhere these days. They're not particularly linguistic, but they do illustrate the point that words can have quite different frequencies. So word clouds show some words with higher frequency in larger font, and then you can use all sorts of colorful ways to then display your word clouds. And in Corpus Linguistics, this relevance of frequencies is super important. And it isn't just counting, it's also thinking about why are these words frequent? How do they function? What do they do in the language? What do they do in specific text across registers in the language in general? And so um, interesting about these frequencies is also that as speakers of a language, we think we know the language, you know, we think, oh, I can speak English, or I can speak German, or I can speak a couple of other languages, but we don't really have a particularly good sense of what is frequent. And a lot of what we say, a lot of language happens without us being aware of exactly what we hear or read or even say. And computers are very unemotional with all of this. They, they don't consider what they are aware of. They just count and show you the data. And then you see what's going on. I mean, maybe a quick example. Have you thought about what frequent words in the English language are? Jonathan, have you got any idea? What, what do you say a lot? Do you know that? <laughs> well, um, to be honest, that is a, maybe it is an obvious question, but maybe it is also not an obvious question. But I, I, I assume that in, uh, in regards to any language, whether it is the English language or the German language, I guess those are just, you know, like, for example, pronouns or just like, you know, words that are used obviously in the daily, in the daily uh, life or conversations. But to be honest, if you ask me on the spot, I don't have an answer. Five words, five nouns that you think are frequent. Just quickly, without thinking about it. Uh, name. Name. Okay. Would uh, you have thought about? Yeah, go, go on. That's one. Which one? N name. You said name. Yeah. What else? Um, morning. Morning. Um, dinner. Mm hmm. Uh, now we're at three, right? <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. So okay. maybe you can. Maybe you can. Yep. Uh, put light on it. Thing is a word that is very frequent. People, time, year, day, stuff, you know, things like this, men, women. And if you look at things like time or day or year, why is this so frequent? It's not because you, you say something about time as a big word. It's just you say things like time and time again, next time, last time I saw you, you know, last year we did this, next year that's the plan or, you know, in a couple of days. These phrases are really frequent and we don't think about them a lot. Also, spoken language is also very different where you have words like know and think that you use quite a lot. That is because you talk about 
I don't know. You say, I don't know, quite a lot, even though you say it when you know quite well what you're saying. You know, things like, um, when are we meeting tonight? I don't know, six o'clock. And you know full well it's six o'clock, but you still say, I don't know, because it's part of the phrasing of the language. So this is stuff that we in corpus linguistics, and here's stuff, another one that's quite frequent, that that's stuff that we in corpus linguistics are interested in. So what do you say frequently? What does this do? What are the effects of this? And then you learn about the meanings of words in a way that you haven't considered before. So it isn't just the words in themselves, but it's also the words that occur together. So um, Mike Scott, um, a corpus linguist and a good friend of mine, he always says, words behave like people. They like to have friends. So some words like to hang out with other words more than um, with others. It's like people who have friends. You know, you like to hang out with some people, but not so much with others. And these little friendship groups tell you a lot about meaning. So another example is, um, I almost thought you would mention the word coffee or so, because coffee is something that people talk a lot about. You know, you go and have a coffee and you say, oh, I haven't had my first coffee yet, so don't ask me a difficult question. And if you look at coffee, everyone thinks they know what the meaning of coffee is. And if you then look at large data sets, for instance, Guardian newspaper articles, and a lot of them, and then you see what kind of meanings are associated with coffee, very in, in recent times, it's coffee is something that people discuss a lot in terms of how many cups of coffee do you have per day? And here's the frequent word day again. And then you talk about, is coffee good for you or is it bad for you? Do, does it keep you awake at night? Does it make you infertile? Are there things around coffee that are horrible? And that is to do a lot with the, the kind of health discourse that we now have in the language, where people think about you know, the way you should live, what's good for you. And coffee is one of these words that has quite an interesting meaning associated with it. So um, what I'm saying is as corpus linguists, we won't read all these Guardian articles or all articles in other newspapers in detail. But what we do is we look at a lot of occurrences of the same word or pattern and see in which context they occur. And then we get a bit of a sense of, yeah, what's the meaning? What's the social context? So the areas I particularly work in are to do with what language tells us about society and culture and also fiction. So, you know, the, the borderlines between fiction and the real world are really quite um, in flow at the moment. So it's, it's all yeah, mixing up. But I don't want to just hijack the conversation with um, telling you what, what, what I'm getting all excited about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you you just uh, you know you just proven it. There's uh, lots of things that we that we can talk about today. So, well, thanks thanks first of all uh, for kind of you know shedding light on uh, you know what you're doing uh, and and where you're coming from. But first things first, before we dive uh, dive deeper into the entire space, um, I want to know why or. Um, why ultimately the University of Birmingham? And like, I mean, you, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, you were, you were there um, before, I mean, your uh, tenureship right now, uh, or you're uh, being a professor there right now, but you, or you've been there before, but why ultimately the University of Birmingham? Uh, uh, that, uh, 
that was one of those things when doing my PhD, obviously you read a lot of literature and you try to understand where the subject that you are so interested in kind of um, had a very high, high impact. And the University of Birmingham was one of the first universities where this corpus revolution really took off because corpus linguistics, because we use computers, you know, this type of linguistics obviously developed over time. And um, there was a point in the 80s where people now call this the corpus revolution, where lexicography absolutely fundamentally changed because when um, dictionaries were first created. This was basically people collected citations from literature or people who made dictionaries, one dictionary copied from another dictionary and this is how dictionaries were made. And then in the 80s um, people thought okay we can do this better now that we can look at large amounts of data instead of just sitting back and thinking which words to include in a dictionary. Why don't we check in the language? And then dictionaries were, were made on the basis of frequency information. So researchers looked at what are the most frequent words in the language, so these surely have to go into the dictionary. And then they looked at data sets to see what patterns are relevant, so what meanings need to go into dictionaries. And the University of Birmingham was where John Sinclair, one of these yeah, founding members of Corpus Linguistics, uh, was a professor and he worked together with Collins Publishers and they created the Cobalt Dictionary, which you might have heard about, you know, it's one of these dictionaries that are based on corpus data and now any good dictionary will incorporate corpus data. So it was kind of, you know, when you do your PhD and you think, oh yeah, that's a really cool university and they do really good stuff and if I ever get anywhere, I really want to be at that place and funnily enough, I kind of ended up there. A bit later. <laughs> well, that is uh, that is very interesting, and um, you know, uh, let's start off uh, with uh, you know one of the things that you said. I mean, you know, we use uh, right in the beginning and explaining what you do. Right, you said we use computer, um, you know, uh, computational methods uh, in order um, to you know an analyze analyze large you know amounts of textual data, and uh, you know where I want to dive in uh, right now is you know. That is what we also discussed prior to prior to our recording is, you know, nowadays, um, you know, there's an abundance of, of data, you know, there's large, large data. Mm -hmm. And maybe kind of historically, right? How, I mean, what, how did this whole field basically, you know, of linguistics, um, you know, develop to such an extent that, you know, now, you, you know, the field is really in a focus because, you know, data science, is you know combined with that and it plays a really huge role and you know i, I want to take that uh you know prior to you saying that again what you told me is that you know you cannot really do data science without linguistics and you cannot really do linguistics without data science so maybe maybe shed a little bit of light in there yeah uh, that is coming back to why is corpus linguistics such a funny term you know because when it started it was corpus linguistic it was really really difficult to have computer readable texts you know it, it it wasn't as easy as today where you can just scrape the internet and then you've got masses as masses of data more than you can handle people really painstakingly compiled what they called corpora so a corpus was a collection of electronic texts and that was hard work you know because you had to either scan books or you had to type up um, 
texts that weren't electronic at all. And so you really had to think about how much time do you spend putting text into a corpus. And then at the beginning, one million words was a massive big corpus today. One million words is, you know, this is nothing. <laughs> but but it, it was really difficult to get this. Or, you know, when I did my PhD, you then still heard these lectures where people explained how um, running concordances on mainframe computers would take a very long time. And then um, during my time at university, um, you know, people still used floppy disks to save their corpora on and to run their little concordance programs in a way that today no one would do anymore. So um, I think uh, the way it started for linguistics was that it was completely novel and revolutionary to have this amount of data and to do analysis with it. But now the world has completely, you know, moved on and data is something where the problem is more, what do you do with these masses of data? So the problem that I now have is when I work with um, my PhD students or with my group of people, it, it's really more, do we have a server or can we do enough on a high performance machine to run several processes at the same time? Because the amount of data is so huge and that's now completely different. And I think this is where then the connection with data science is coming about because independently of linguistics, data science developed, but there people were more concerned with, yeah, what is data? What can you do in terms of technology with all sorts of language data, visual data, numerical data? And linguistics also progressed, but um, I don't think it progressed quickly enough along with the data science and data science just progressed without really looking much at what was happening at linguistics or in linguistics. So I think we are now at the point where it's time for both sides to, you know, sit down at the table together and say, okay, how can we help each other out so that, um, you know, w w when I'm running stuff at university and all the servers are coughing, um, someone from um, a data science perspective can just come in and say, oh, that's an easy problem. And when people have issues in data science where they come up with uh, patterns and models and they need some linguistic view on this, the linguists can come in and say, oh yeah, we can really help you there. So that's, um, I think, a bit of a historical uh, development as well. You know, sometimes things happen for no particular reason, just because the way yeah, history takes its course. And um, it's important to then stop and reflect and say, how can we um, interfere? How can we drive this consciously in a particular direction? Yeah, right. And um, maybe we can, you know, delve a little bit more into, okay, so what does this, you know, uh, intersection actually then, you know, look like in terms of problems that are being, let's say, covered? You know, what are mm. what are problems, uh, you know, from a, you know, let's say from from your research field, uh, you know, concrete problems that you can that you can share with us right now, where you know mm. data science is being applied. Mm. Okay, yeah, um, 
there's a there's a range of things so so i mean maybe uh, one recent article that um, is about to come out and this is uh, something that we did with a group of people together is um, we worked together uh, with a company where we went to a hackathon and um, you know these hackathons where everyone gets a problem and you've got 24 hours to work on something <laughs> and um, we worked together with people in that company and we looked at uh, basically communication in, in, in the business world. So, and I can't obviously tell you exactly what we did at the hackathon, but I can tell you about things that we did in a paper that was kind of inspired by this. So we looked at um, tweets of various companies that work um, in, in similar fields. And we were interested in the way in which um, uh, companies respond to customer feedback when people send them a message that says, you know, I bought this product off you and now XYZ isn't working. Can you help me? You know? Mm. And so we collected a, a, a lot of tweets to then see what are the patterns, what are the ways in which people who respond to these tweet, to, uh, tweets talk to their customers and what are the ways in which they're doing this. And then um, we... Um, did linguistic analysis of this to see what what are the kind of styles that you use and uh, and and then um, you could see what worked particularly effectively or not because we also used then um, uh, an experiment where we asked people to say if you see a tweet like this or a tweet like this which one you know is this an effective way of responding to a customer complaint and this example is one where you know, it's kind of a data science problem to collect masses of tweets and then do analysis on tweets. And you, you know, if you look at um, data science courses or if you look at um, their data science companies that offer tools and say, we can help you with your analytics in various ways. And then they offer you ways of analyzing social media and all the rest of it. But that is very often done in a just very technical way and what we've done is we've done the technical bits you know taking the tweets analyzing the tweets but we've also used our linguistic knowledge to say how does communication work what ways of communication do you have to consider when you interact with customers you know what makes a tweet very effective or or how do you show customers that you care what are the linguistic devices and what i found really interesting there is that yeah, a lot of products and services that are out there in the world already do things that are very linguistic in one way, but they often end up with the technological solution to it. And then this step of interpretation and looking at the context and looking at the purpose and looking at the effects is something that then isn't done because it stops at the data analytics perspective of it does that make sense was that example yeah, it does it does make sense you know and, and and where you know where i want to have this um this conversation now towards is you know you already and and, and good for you mentioning basically uh, that you know this was inspired through a hackathon you know um uh, and, and you know you guys basically working with an organization because what you said is that data science as a field you know moved faster than basically you know let's say other uh, other fields and especially let's say compared to linguistic in a sense 
in, in, in the methodologies and stuff like that. And, and that is obviously, you know, dependent on, you know, what has happened basically, you know, in, 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 in the wider economy, because, you know, data science has been applied data science, you know, has been uh, skyrocketing basically, you know, there's more and more use cases in, you know, businesses. It obviously has, uh, has to do also with the growth of, you know, um, the big tech companies and the application mm -hmm. there. And, um, you know, that's, that's exactly where I want to, uh, where I want to dive into is, you know, you said as well that, you know, you, you guys now, you know, cooperate more and more with different, um, with different companies, you know, and uh, you, you had also a, a very interesting view in regards to, you know, how should, you know, education or from an academia mm. perspective, you know, change in regards to, you know, for example, how are PhDs being conducted, right? How, how uh, it should be more in an applied sense. So maybe to, you know, divide these, uh, this, these two questions then with the first mm -hmm. one. What is, um, what are, what are, you know, examples where you cooperate with companies, you know, in the sense of where you bring together the work that you do at academia and then basically, mm -hmm. you know, problems or let's say things that, that you guys then do with corporates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think with, with corporates, they have so much data just available and a lot of the data that they have it's very often text, you know, the kind of stuff that we as corpus linguists would analyze. So people write emails, <laughs> people tweet, people have web pages, they've got policy documents. There is masses and masses of data available. And what you then can do when you take a linguistic perspective on this is you can try and analyze this kind of data. So not just in a data science perspective where you say, okay, I've, I've got this and I look at graphs and I look at statistics, but you can then contextualize and see what, what is the purpose of this kind of communication. And that is where it becomes really, really interesting because corporates I've talked to, they, they always realize that in this day and age, communication is absolutely key it's absolutely vital because the way we work so so we as people in the 21st century has completely changed you know that there is a lot more emphasis on you know how you communicate how how you talk to others how you sell your products and your products are also different and that is something i, I think uh, without getting too political i mean covid is showing this now really with um, you know where people are rightly concerned about jobs because certain things can't be done anymore in a lockdown situation but then other things boom massively you know if you look at uh, co companies like zoom have you, I, I mean i must admit i hadn't heard of zoom before the lockdown but now everyone is using zoom all the time and so things have changed in in the way we work and because things have changed we also need to understand better how we communicate and we can be a lot more self-reflective because it is so easy to now analyze how we communicate you know going back to the history of corpus linguistics it was a massive effort to find this evidence of language use so the mantra of corpus linguistics was always we are different kind of linguists because we are looking at the way in which language is really used we are actually looking at evidence of the interaction and, and it was difficult to gather this evidence. Now, 
everyone constantly leaves evidence of how they communicate. You know, your WhatsApp messages, your um, Facebook account, you know, the blog posts that you write. So much is out there now that can be analyzed so that we can do something with this. And um, as I said before, there are so many services. Now, you know, if you do a Google search on data analytics services for your business or so, there's so many things that come up where people say, oh, we can analyze this data set for you, or we can help you with this kind of communication. And there is the place where I think people could really make a huge difference if they work together, if they use the technological developments that are possible together with the linguistics insights that we now have, we could completely um, yeah, revolutionize how we understand communication. And once you understand communication, you can then also shape it and make it better. To give a negative example, again, without becoming too political, but um, when you look at misinformation and the way people rig elections and you know create political propaganda, that is also where people understand communication and where people do understand data science in certain ways. And um, you can also use this in a positive way. You know, you don't need to use it to um, yeah, uh, affect uh, voters' behavior to uh, achieve goals. You can also use understanding of communication to become more effective, to have better um, um, customer relationships to work more effectively with your workforce in your corporate company. Right. And maybe, um, you know, uh, as, as to kind of go into the second question, because I found that very, very interesting, um, you know, especially from coming it from, from you as an academic where um, you basically said, you know, I think, you know, research and, 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 you know, the problems that we're tackling, should be more and more applied because the system, mm -hmm. the educational system that we have is outdated. And you made an example with, with you know, people that yeah. are, for example, founding startups or, or, you know, want to work in startups. Maybe you can, yeah. you know, drop a little yeah. bit on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think people should, it is difficult because we obviously have to work with the education system, but we can also change the education system and um, trying to think about new models. Um, people often come with a mindset of I'm doing this particular subject and then maybe I think about a PhD in this particular subject or so. But you can also think about, you know, what are the problems in the world that need solving and what might I need to help solve these problems. And if you, so from a linguistic perspective, there are a lot of problems that are to do with the language. So a couple of years ago, I looked at a concept like sustainable development and, you know, environmental stuff and to see how people respond to this. And, uh, you know, very often it is about um, explaining things in the right way, using the right channels of communication. And so it would be good if there was more um, exchange between startups, for instance, that try to solve particular problems for corporates in communication spaces and in data analytics, and then think about what kind of PhD would you need to, to do this? Because you can then benefit from the interaction with a lot of researchers, with the interdisciplinarity, and you can bring things together that you might not have considered. So, you know, I absolutely love the idea of hackathons. This is something that is, this is just brilliant, you know, because you are forced to speak to people that you wouldn't 
normally speak to because you've never seen them before. You know, you usually meet the people on the day and you are um, just randomly getting into groups and then you try to understand each other and work out some problems. And it, it, it would be a nice way, you know, if there were, was more along the lines of hackathons to work out what would be good PhD topics or so. You know, you, you could really see how that could work. Right. But um, do you think that, you know, from my perspective or as far as, you know, I have um, experienced academia, you know, especially, mm -hmm. you know, funny thing is, uh, from my perspective, now, obviously, you can challenge me on that, right? The thing, the two parties that you just mentioned, right? So yeah. in startups and you mentioned, let's say, you know, academia, so universities, right? Those yeah. are both ends, you know, of the extreme. So, yeah. one, you know, the one, uh, uh, so startups, you know, are, let's say, you know, standing for, you know, being faster than anything, you know, faster than, faster than the, the regular organization, right? Challenging status quo. And like you really, let's say, always, you know, striving to be, let's say, two steps ahead. You know, mm -hmm. while I would, let's say, place academia, especially, let's say, compared to the regular, let's say, uh, to, to, let's say, uh, um, uh, the private, uh, uh, private place is that, it is um, more or less, you know, bound with, you know, a lot of obviously regulations, a lot of, let's say, bureaucracy and stuff. So how do you, let's say, see, because, you know, you mentioned, let's say, challenging or maybe there needs to be some, some sort of revolution in the educational system. But let's say, do you see really, let's say, that moving also forward? Because in order for that to happen, there needs to be also the willingness, let's say, from, the, from academia, right, to, to do these things, right? There needs to yeah. be more professors that are open to, let's say, you know, do things such as like hackathons and really, let's say, looking for applied, let's say, ways to, to, uh, uh, to, towards research. Mm. Yeah, but I think it's, it's always this people work in their own spheres and, you know, more needs to be done to enable this conversation and this exchange because, I mean, I can tell you when, when we went to this hackathon, I still remember how I tried to convince my colleagues to say, this is a great idea, you know, I absolutely want to go there. And I remember the first conversation we had in the team and people were like, oh yeah, no, I can't really see how this is relevant to what I'm doing at the moment. But then, you know, the group of us that went were really like, yeah, we just thought, let's, let's, let's give it a go. And at the end of it, everyone was completely excited to say, yeah, th this is how this works. This is brilliant. So I think it's this... Um, and it was the same from the company. I mean, they could have said, oh, you know, what do we want with these boring academics? But they said, oh, yeah, that looks like an interesting topic. Why don't you give it a go? And I think this, why don't you give it a go is what people need. And you don't need to change the system for that. You just need to have people who want to give it a go and talk to others because you only see the problems that... Um, you want to solve or can solve by talking to other people. And I know that this, this isn't easy. And um, I had a lot of conversation as well, uh, conversations as well with, um, with people in other fields and other areas where the first five minutes are very good, where you have this, oh, yeah, I can see how we do similar things. And then it drifts into, yeah, but in my field, we've already solved that problem. So what you are saying is a problem that in computer science we've already solved 20 years ago. And you don't get further into the deep conversation. But I equally had colleagues in computer science where you spend weeks trying to really understand what the problem is. And once you start understanding each other then you can jointly move forward and do something together so i think 
it requires the open-minded people. So the open-minded um, researchers, startup companies, PhD students, supervisors, academics, but in each group, I think, I truly believe there are a lot of open-minded people and we just need to get them together more. Yeah. Find ways of how do we get them into the same room? How do we get the right people into the same room so that together they can move forward? And also how can we make sure that people read more across the board? Maybe, maybe another example is, um, you know, we, we briefly talked about this before, is the Google Books um, corpus. You know, when Google Books came out, that there was quite a hype about, oh, you now can now data mine all these um, Google Books and you can do lots of stuff with it. And then articles came out that were written from people in very different fields. And, um, you know, depending on the journal in which they published it, it was regarded, oh, this is revolutionary. This is completely different. Look what they can do with Google Books. But very often, it was a very limited, um, very limited subject perspective where the insights were rather, I don't know, profunctional, very technical going through the motions. And if people had talked more across disciplines to realize what others in similar areas had already done, jointly you could have done a lot more. And that's something, I mean, this is now opening a whole other box, but this is why I also think that open science, open research is so important. So it's really important that um, the work that you do needs to be published in a way that other people can read it. So, you know, that it's out there fast, that it's out there for people to read and not behind too many paywalls and difficulties. And also there needs to be more communication in a way that you don't just write for your own field, but you try to I don't know, write blog posts, publish in other journals, write so that people from other fields can see what you're doing. Right. Um, you said, and I think that is a perfect, a perfect, let's say, follow-up question to that, is you just mentioned, you know, that the interdisciplinarity, you know, putting, let's say, you know, different fields together is really, let's say, where, you know, a, a lot of value lies. And let's say coming back to, let's say, corpus linguistic, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in our uh, talks prior to this recording is that you looked and, you know, and, and I think for most people, if they, if they hear linguistic, right, or if they, if they think about, let's say, you know, machine learning and then the intersection of or machine learning as a field and then, you know, kind of, let's say, evolving into a subfield, it is obviously, let's say, natural language processing. So, mm -hmm. you know, that is most, most, most probably the first thing that comes to mind. So, mm -hmm. and the funny thing is that you said uh, that you took a look at, let's say, you know, uh, most recent or let's say the uh, most recent literature in regards to natural language processing, you know, and the, and the models that they're being used and uh, in regards to as well, linguistic models. And, you know, maybe, maybe you can tell a little bit about that because that was yeah. Yeah, 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 maybe. Yeah, because I, I was just, I, I just did this because I thought I, I really just want to know where a lot of these discussions that we have come about. So, so what kind of linguistics, because there's, there's very often assumptions about how the language works. And then um, people write uh, technical solutions to problems that are linguistic, and they make assumptions about the underlying language models. And to me, it looked from this literature review that a lot of the models that are being used 
are kind of not the models that are current in linguistics. So it's kind of as if when linguistics is used in other fields that are not linguistics, uh, the fields are necessarily behind, you know, in terms of catching up, being behind 30, 40, 50 years uh, with how linguistics was seen. And linguistics has developed, but the most recent approaches haven't made it across into other disciplines yet. And, and then you've, you get these discussions about what is important or how you should do things. I mean, uh, maybe an example, a, a conversation that I've ha had quite often with colleagues is, um, is, is the notion of stop words, something that people are familiar with. So, you, you know, when you, when you do um, computational stuff and then think about which words are really important. And then very often um, approaches would say, oh, yeah, and we first kick out the stop words and don't look at them. So stop words are um, usually grammatical words. So the really most frequent words in the language, like articles, you know, the, uh, um, end of um, you know prepositions things like this and then they just drop them and say we don't need them because these are not words that are important therefore we just leave them out and then we run our calculations without these words and then we as linguists always come in and say yeah but these are really such important words because they do major jobs for forming these phrases and they have an important role in co-occurrence patterns so you really must keep them in <laughs> you know and, and and these are conversations that have to happen ac across disciplines you know to say what assumptions do you make about the language or going back to the word cloud example Sometimes people use word clouds, uh, you know, to illustrate stuff about uh, frequencies in language, but then they don't realize that also in word clouds, people behind the scenes make assumptions because in word clouds, again, you don't usually see these high frequency words, these function words, these little grammatical words. The, the, the word clouds focus on content words. Word clouds also do stuff um, like stemming, you know, where you group different words together based on um, computational processes. But the way in which these words are grouped together is mainly defined by, um, you know, a computational possibility rather than what is necessarily the best way of grouping words together from a linguistic point of view. And these are just small little things that are quite interesting for um, exchange across disciplines and um, yeah, talking about how jointly we could come to a good solution. Right. So maybe as a, as a quick question, would you say, you know, because I once, once I heard, um, once I heard the statement that in regards to machine learning, you know, language and vision as the two fields, uh, application mm -hmm. fields are more or less solved. And, mm -hmm. um, Maybe, maybe you want to maybe you want to challenge that, especially on the let's say language side. Obviously, um, how do you see that? Uh, no, I, I don't think. Yeah, I mean that that is what I meant before. A typical thing where people tell you, "Oh, yeah, the problem that you mentioned in linguistics that's already solved. That problem is ticked off the list." But there is still a lot to do with you know the context in which language is used and um, I mean that connects to something that I'm trying to do at the moment in the area of how do we read y you know because when we read we bring a lot of 
background knowledge to text. So language is always understood against the context of your individual experience. And um, when you try to use machines to do all the language jobs for you, it always works better when you make context very restrictive. So when you've got very concrete problems, very clear areas, and um, are very specific about the problems that are being solved. But there's also a lot in terms of individual experience, variation across speakers, new developments, and all of this also needs to be taken into account. So, I mean, this is one I could talk about this for an hour, but I don't agree that it's all solved. It's gone quite far and it's uh, very good and lots of brilliant things have been done, but it isn't entirely solved yet and more can still be done if you look at what's the purpose of the communication, what background um, do people come from, how do they interpret messages, what are the emotional effects of what is happening, you know, and how do you expand it beyond very specific tasks and um, parameters. Right. I think, I think, you know, it is, it's just, you know, fair, it's really unfair to, or not unfair, that is the wrong word probably, but it is really, uh, yeah, uh, I think, um, yeah, difficult to say kind of that something is solved because, you know, mm -hmm. there's so many dimensions, you know, like if, if we take, if we take our world, there's so many dimensions in terms of, you know, application, you know, or, uh, or something is, you know, is relevant in a sense, you know, and mm -hmm. if we take language, you know, there's as well, you know, it's multidimensional, you know, it's not just like, you know, people, you know, language, you know, as, as, as being some, something being used, you know, in, in the daily life to communicate, you know, there, there's way more dimensions to that. Like, for example, um, you know, if we, if we kind of, there's like people that are more or less, you know, calling themselves, uh, you know, futurists, you know, people that think about, okay, so how are we going to do things in the future? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things uh, which I, found very interesting um i had a conversation with somebody uh in the beginning of this year and uh he basically told us about um because he's very frequently in china and he said you know it's quite difficult obviously and in china because you know in order to really move around you know and get things done and stuff it is really let's say you know of, of um of a benefit if you speak chinese you know mm -hmm. and and he said like there ultimately there is a device you know that that uh he found out about the device and in, in china that is being also sold and um you know that device is ultimate like it is a real-time translation basically so mm -hmm. from chinese to english and it works like surprisingly well like he, he said like it is really something that he is using on a daily basis you know mm -hmm. where you're thinking okay you know that is really interesting because like what, like if we think this further and, you know, um, thinking in terms of technological advancement and, and, and life cycles and how things are improving over time, right. Mm -hmm. And becoming less, less cost intensive. Um, mm -hmm. How would a world look like then obviously when, you know, when there's no need to learn any other languages anymore, because, you know, only, you know, the language where let's say you are, you know, you're basically your mother tongue, you know, the, the language that you've heard from, let's say, day one from your parents and from the, the uh, geographical area where you, where this language is being uh, used, let's say most, most, most probably. If, you know, there's the possibility to just, you know, have a, an in-year, you know, and maybe that in-year is as well, you know, just like a 
you know, like a headphone, like a, like an AirPod, for example, you know, which you can also use to just have calls and stuff, you know, I mean, it, it, it is really interesting to like, you know, to just like see, okay, there's so many dimensions. And then the, on the other hand, you know, if we take language and there's, you know, literature, you know, and, and which is also a huge part of our, uh, you know, society and how, how we as society actually evolve and how we share knowledge and stuff. So as, as well, I would agree, you know, coming, coming to a, to a conclusion on that, then is, is, you know, I would agree as well. It is really, um, you know, uh, difficult to say that something is being solved because there's, you know, it's multidimensional. Yeah, and it's also to since you mentioned literature and culture and all this, it's um, you know there are different ways of language use. You can use language in a very you know transactional way to you know when you have translations for how do you buy a coffee or how do you order specific products um, online by clicking somewhere or how do you um, you know these call center type questions or so where you already know what space you're in but if you if you look at how language has developed since you mentioned literature it you know if you look at how people read fiction and read fiction in different languages and what what they then get out of a book and how they read that book and what kind of meaning they take away has a lot to do with their prior experience so it isn't just the words on the page but it is the kind of you know almost the history that the words have for people and the background knowledge that they bring to the story this is why often when you read um fiction either historical fiction with today's students there's quite a lot um, that can be missed because they don't know what the cultural context was of so you, you know one area of my research i mean i don't want to go into detail now is but looking at um, body language you know and if you look at how we read body language body language in the 19th century was quite different from body language today and you can completely miss very subtle but very meaningful things in fiction if, if, if you don't have this historical knowledge and you can imagine that um, you know automatic translation could translate this quite nicely for you and you get some kind of meaning but you don't get the meaning that you would have in this book as a whole you know and then it's in the same way that a, a lot of meaning also only travels as far from one culture to another where certain senses are okay but you still need to have a particular knowledge of the background of the context to see how this emotionally lands with people and i think that is particularly the area that i find is very interesting for the whole ai machine learning business um, emotional responses to communication not just um, you know procedural stuff let's do this let's solve that but also what effect does it have on people how do people feel about this what might it do to mental health what does it do to relationships if there's a lot of computer mediated communication in between the things we do in our daily lives so that is a whole different ball game from just saying how do we translate a little bit of text right 100 percent um maybe as a last point you know to kind of you know uh, conclude on, on, on this, uh, on this, uh, on the show today. Um, I want to talk about, uh, your work that you did together with the times, uh, mm -hmm. times magazine, uh, because mm -hmm. I think that is very, uh, very, very interesting. Um, maybe you can dive a little bit deeper into that. 
Yeah, it's the um, so it's the the Times newspaper. You know, there's the Times Digital Archive, um, where you can basically access um, all the published. Um, yeah all the publications of the time since it started and um, the reason why this is quite interesting is that a couple of years ago the um, copyright laws in the UK changed so there, there was this um, the right to read is now the right to mind so when when you already own um, access to data sets and that's especially relevant for universities you know who own these databases where you then go into a catalog and search articles in the times where you would then normally get the pdf of the page you know so that you actually have a visual copy of um, a times newspaper from i don't know 1840 or something like this and now with the right to read is the right to mine you are now actually for research purposes allowed to use this whole database as a data set on which you can do text and data mining right. and and that's that really is a massive kind of resource because if you look at what happens in newspaper articles you learn a lot about a culture about um, you know not just about the language but also about the culture about worldviews what do people regard as newsworthy what do they think is important to put in a newspaper and what does this tell you about the worldview that is um, there you, you know and so um, we've now been trying to use these masses of times data to then uh, try and find uh, patterns look at collocations and one of the things is um, um, I had a PhD student who looked at um, surveillance discourse to see how this concept has evolved over time because um, you know in in the newspapers you could see how the discourse moved towards a surveillance society you know where it started very slowly with this concept and then it's becoming yeah, more and more prevalent or you could see where there were um, even in things like um, advertising is what um, my PhD student, so that's Viola Wiegand, she found this out in her PhD, that advertising is also quite an interesting area because surveillance um, was something that then came up in adverts quite a bit because people were keen on installing cameras and therefore you got different type of advertising which tells you a lot about the culture you're in. So that is a massive data set that has huge potential and I think again not just for linguistics because you could also look at it from a historical perspective, you could look at it from a business point of view to see how relationships between companies and workers have developed, what has been said about workers' rights, how people have dealt with government decisions on yeah, all sorts of uh, topics that um, affect the workforce. So I think that is just another example of how data sets are now just becoming available. You can almost, I mean, the Times is one example, but there's a data set for almost everything now. And, uh, you know, it's there for the taking. It's just trying to think about what questions can you ask. And the questions are basically endless, you know. Yeah. Well, Michaela, thanks a lot for, uh, for being on the show. It was very, very interesting. Thank you, Jonathan. Yes, I enjoyed that. <laughs>